0: The chainsaws need to be put down, and there needs to there need to be talks. You know, there needs to be talks that include all of the stakeholders, and put at the forefront conservation of these forests.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Sierra Youth Podcast. You might be wondering what's different, and I'm glad to tell you that our name has changed. We just kind of figured that our episodes weren't 10 minutes in length, but we still really like incorporating actionable items that inspire change at the end of every episode. In terms of today's episode, some of you may have already heard about Fairy Creek and the old growth logging going on, and many of you may not have. So today we try and demystify that, and we speak to some really amazing people but before we do that, I do want to give you all a brief background on what's going on. So the Ferry Creek blockade issue has been going on for months since around August 2020. What started as a movement to prevent old growth logging in the northern headwaters of the Ferry Creek watershed in Pachida First Nations territory on Vancouver Island has now grown to numerous different blockades, each aimed at stopping the logging company Teal Jones from accessing its cut blocks throughout the southwestern Vancouver Island location. The Ferry Creek watershed is one of the last unlogged water Sheds on Vancouver Island, and it has almost become the symbol of saving BC's temperate rainforest in general. In April 2021, the BC Supreme Court officially served the activists an in injunction, but instead of deterring them, the recent legal action has actually reinvigorated the, mo- the movement, and it's caused the number of activists to increase, including the indigenous artist Randy Cook, amongst many other people. An injunction is basically a court order that requires individuals to acknowledge the legality and the right of Teal Jones to undergo their work. Those found to be in violation could be fined or arrested and charged with contempt of court. To be clear, though, the blockade is not a war, but a desperate final stand against old growth harvest. Banners in the, um, the camps at Ferry Creek are emblazoned with the words, you know, the last stand for ancient temperate rainforests, and it decorates wooden barricades and vehicles throughout the blockades. The environmental movement that began eight months ago may have started at Ferry Creek, but it's now grown to encompass a much larger holistic issue. There is a real sense of urgency among the activists that the last stand is not just a fight for Ferry Creek, but it's a fight for the last remaining unprotected ancient forest throughout the entire province. You can't forget that Ferry Creek is a highly complex issue and one that tackles directly decolonizing relationships with indigenous peoples and respecting their right to self-determination. The Pachida Nation has a revenue share agreement with the government and it receives a percentage of stumpage fees paid by by Teal Jones. Yet, the Pachida elder, Bill Jones, has expressed opposition to logging as well as concern for the red and yellow cedar in his territory. Essentially, the Pachida Nation is at a crossroads when it comes to the future of its forests. And what many people may not know is that government actions have propagated the disagreements between, you know, individuals in the nation. So basically, the agreement that the Pachydan Nation signed with Teal Jones um, allows logging to be conducted in certain tree-licensed areas in their territory, but it also disallows the nation from speaking out or being involved in actions against the logging. As a result, many leaders have remained silent, and that is also why, you know, we see Elder Bill Jones expressing his opposition to the logging and then as well many other individuals in the pachita nation are not speaking out or they're saying that they don't endorse the blockade as i mentioned it's a very complex issue and today we demystify it a little bit before we begin i just want to do a quick fact-based context setting Because we're going to be talking about old growth forests, we're going to be talking about how many of them there are in BC, and so I just want us all to be kind of on the same playing field. So, old growth forests, as as defined by the Sierra Club of Canada, they are forest ecosystems that have grown for at least 200 years without any disturbance, such as logging. Old growth ecosystems are unique because they have a very dense canopy that allows for a very rich understory, which is kind of like the forest floor. This understory is an important habitat for many beings, from mammals to insects to fungi. Some species like the marbled muralet and the spotted owl can only survive in old growth forests. Unfortunately though, the logging industry in BC continues to threaten these unique ecosystems. In terms of the amount of actual old growth in BC, BC has around 57 million hectares of forest. However, only 35,000 hectares of those is old growth forests, which contain large ancient trees. This is in contrast to the BC government's approximation because they say that we actually have around 13 million hectares of old growth forest. And experts have actually deemed this to be extremely inaccurate because the government doesn't differentiate between productive and non-productive old growth forests. What that means is that companies can actually harvest really big trees and they can leave small unproductive trees and at the same time still meet their old growth retention targets okay so i've talked a lot i've talked a little bit about fairy creek forests logging indigenous rights and we also have a lot more to go. So today, like I mentioned, we're going to try and demystify what's going on for you, and we're just going to talk about how we can move forward in a sustainable and also a just way. We talked to Joshua Wright, an organizer and spokesperson with the Rainforest Flying Squad, and he also is running the over 19,000 follower Instagram account Fairy Creek Blockade. We also have Colby Rex O'Neill. He's a really amazing videographer, director, and cinematographer who's capturing amazing footage of the blockades and of the old growth forests in Fairy Creek. And then we also talked to Kim Murray, who's been on the ground fighting the logging, and she also shares some beautiful words about why forests are so important to us and why they're also important for the environment. So without further ado, I really hope that you enjoy this episode and let's get into it. Yeah, so Joshua, before we dive into everything, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and also how you're affiliated with the whole Fairy Creek blockade movement?
0: Yeah, so um, my name is Joshua Wright. I'm from Washington State and I'm a forest defender down here in the States. Um, about eight or nine months ago, I got in touch with Carol Tootle up in Canada and um, I'd been basically tracking the logging on Vancouver Island for several years before that. And I'd seen the Teal, this logging company, Teela Jones, had plans to build logging roads into the headwaters of uh, the last intact valley outside of a park on Southern Vancouver Island. So I got in touch with the group of activists up there, and um, a few days later, we started a blockade, and I've basically been behind the scenes tracking what the logging company is doing and managing social media and sort of doing a lot of messaging for the blockades and just keeping an eye out for where the companies are going next.
1: Yeah, amazing, thank you so much. Um, Colby, can you let us know a little bit about yourself and, and how you're affiliated?
2: Yeah, totally. Um, I'm from Denman Island. Uh, which is one of the little gulf islands out here on the coast of vancouver island and uh, i'm a documentary filmmaker i've been making independent films and documentaries for the last 10 years now and ertha um, is one of the early organizers of the blockade uh, up at Ferry creek and she's been trying to get me out there for a while and i managed to get out there and do some drone footage in the fall and then uh, when i found out the injunction had been served uh, i've been extra motivated and have been up there twice in the last two weeks and i intend to Get out there every week if i can and um i've been trying to recruit musicians and try to find other things to do to raise awareness for fairy creek um i just talked to autumn sky today and i'm going to go back with her in may for four days and film her painting and make a little film with her out in the woods and basically i've just been getting out there and uh trying to find out on the ground what people that aren't there need to hear and trying to find the best way to relay that
1: uh, thank you, Colby and Joshua, for sharing that about yourselves. And uh, last but not least, Kim. Yeah, can you tell us how you're affiliated with the Ferry Creek Blockade? I'm Kim.
3: I guess my affiliation with Fairy Creek is um, camp support. I've been camp support since last August, and that's kind of how I got involved. Um, just being really impressed. And um, Sorry if that was my phone. I don't think it was. But anyway, just being really... Um, Uh, impressed with everyone's dedication and uh, willingness to just go out there and put themselves on the line. I thought maybe what I could do was go see what I um, could bring to the table to help support camps. And um, that has turned into a full-time situation of being involved. And thanks to Joshua and all of those that he brought in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks everyone for introducing yourselves. Um, Why don't we just get into it? So You know, let's provide that background because you know many of our listeners may not have heard about Fairy Creek or they might not know too much about it. So, what is going on, and what do we need to know about this issue as just like baseline information before we get really deep into the issue?
0: It might be good, um, I guess, to establish sort of just the basic facts about what's happening in British Columbia as force overall, not just in Fairy Creek. Um, And that's basically that uh, British Columbia has. One of the only remaining temperate rainforests on earth um, in the province. And it for se- over a century has been logging the old growth forests of it, you know, of its land base for um, you know, timber um, and shipping that timber overseas in most cases, and in some cases million in the in the province. Um and then in, in any case, they've been essentially taking these ancient forests and clear-cutting them for over a hundred years, and now we are down to. Um, about four hundred and fifteen thousand hectares of the best old growth remaining in the province, according to a report last April, and that's currently being logged. Old growth forests overall are being logged at a rate of uh, one hundred and fifty thousand hectares per year in British Columbia. So, um, you know that includes all all types of old growth forests. But essentially, what we're looking at is the annihilation of most old growth forests in the next decade, and. Um, the BC government uh, has ca- campaigned on protecting old growth forests. And um, they've sort of said that they're, you know, they're doing it, they're working on it. But what's happened is essentially they've been talking and they've been saying they're protecting old growth forests and they really haven't been. So it's been a sort of a talk and log type thing where they say they're gonna protect these ancient forests and they don't protect them. Um, and now we're sort of down to the bottom of the barrel and Ferry Creek arose out of desperation really, where people, um, we're seeing all these reports saying, you know, we're running out of our old growth, we're running out of these forests, which are the, which store more biodiversity per acre, have more biodiversity per acre than almost any other ecosystem on earth, and store more carbon per acre than almost any other ecosystem on earth. And, you know, these forests were still being annihilated, and people just, it was frustration. It was like, why aren't you acting? Um, And what ended up happening was a few, about a dozen people set up a blockade, 4,000 feet up a ridgeline, right as the road is about to go into the headwaters of this intact old-growth forest with 2,000-year-old trees, and um, the rest has been history. Now there's been thousands of people out to the blockades, and um, it's a real movement now.
3: How do you feel? We've extracted far too much for far too long, and it needs to end. Um, so that's, I mean, without going into details or, you know, facts and figures aren't really my thing, but like for people who aren't in British Columbia or who haven't had the opportunity to be in an old growth forest especially the kinds that we find on the west coast of Vancouver Island it's it might be a little bit hard to understand just the diversity and the life that is held within those ecosystems um but when you finders when you get a chance to be in a forest and see the the complexity of it it's really hard to even imagine that we've ever Laid waste to them to begin with. Never mind to the point where there are so few pockets of these ecosystems left. It's um, it's it's hard to fathom that we've allowed that to happen. And part of it is, I think, that we're just so disconnected at this point from the natural world. very Creek, I feel like it's been a bit of a flashpoint. Um, it kind of comes on the heels of the NDP um, being elected on promises of um, doing something differently and having policy shift and you know just changing the, the way we go about forestry in British Columbia and um, as when Ferry Creek first um, came to be like as far obviously it's been there forever but as far as people paying attention to it is when you know we were waiting for this old growth review panel report to come out it had been the, the review had been done, the report had been authored, and we had not had a chance to look at it as British Columbians. And so part of the movement behind Fairy Creek, which has kind of just started a bigger conversation about old growth logging in general, was to see what that report had to say. Um, the report's out. It's clear that um, the first thing that needs to happen is we need to stop and reevaluate where we're at. And that's not happening. So um, uh, how this became the movement it is, is that people are willing to stand on the line and say, no, we've had enough. And so now here we are, and it's getting some traction and that's great. That's what these movements are about and it's working. So that's, I don't know. That's kind of what I have to say. (laughs) Hi,
4: Kim. I think, were you at River Camp? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I was at river camp camping along the rock logging road for a few days with my partner. And I, I definitely talked to you. For <laughs> yeah, I remember Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Well, hi. Um, hi. That's awesome. Um, I just wanted to go off what you were saying. I actually don't have a question at the moment, but I just wanted to um, go off what you were saying and mention that uh, and say that I like that you mentioned that this movement isn't just about fairy creek it's about like stopping all old growth logging on um, Vancouver Island and in the province of BC and I also really like the focus um, around this movement as being very like grassroots and nonviolent because I feel like at times like throughout history like we have a tendency to like villainize protesters and like villainize this movement and like turn people against each other but I really like that like, there's so many different people coming together to, like, put their feet down and say, like, no, like, enough is enough. Like, you know, we need to protect this forest. We need to, you know, recognize its inherent value, you know, for current and future generations. And so I just wanted to, to say that.
3: Yeah, it's interesting at, um, and you'll have experience with this at the camps, just the variety of, <clears throat> pardon me, intelligent people, passionate people. Um, it's frustrating to see things like um, the national... The article, or the on the national last night on the CBC um, segment on the news, and it being categorized once again as the war in the woods. And I think he opens the entire segment with um, something to the effect of the struggle is about to ensue, or some you know alarmist title for this story, which is actually not really what the story is when you look at what's on the ground. Um, Even the relationships that people are having, not just in the blockades, but between blockaders and industry, there the divisiveness isn't even what the news wants it to be. So it's it's frustrating because the story isn't as you know we're not a bunch of crazy leftist militant violent you know it's it's all kinds of people just going can we stop for a second and have a conversation about what's going on and. Um, but you know that doesn't sell papers I guess so to speak not that anyone here buys a paper
1: <laughs> not if it's available on a PDF online you're right um, I think you're 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 all giving a great background on this issue and I'm curious to know like who the major stakeholders are in this in this um, situation I know we touched on it a bit but maybe uh, Joshua and and Colby, do you want to, you know, provide a little bit of insight as to like who are the major players? Where's the conflict? Yeah, take it away.
0: Yeah, so um, the major players in this are there's sort of three major players. There's the BC uh, NDP government, um, which is the which is the government that's approving all of this logging because most of it is taking place on public crown lands. Um, and then there are the, the nations, the First Nations involved, who in many cases are working with the, um, the BC government to approve this logging, um, and mo- mostly because they don't have economic alternatives and because they've sort of been tr- put into a position where they ha- have to um, either destroy their land base to, um, you know, get some sort of measly revenue or face like extreme poverty. Um, so you have the First Nations, and in the case of Fairy Creek, it's on a territory territory of Apache Dat First Nation. Um, We've also been doing um, some certain actions on the territory north of Ferry Creek. And um, then the the third major players are the logging companies. Um, In the case of Ferry Creek, it's Teela Jones. Um, We've also blockaded certain Western forest products operations. Um, But these are essentially really big conglomerates. Teela Jones is the largest privately owned company or privately owned logging company in British Columbia. You have companies like Western Forest Products who own their logging rights to most of Vancouver Island, Interfor, um, Canfor, all these sort of really big logging companies, uh, Mosaic, that in most cases ship their logs overseas, in some cases mill in British Columbia, but earlier, that's not the point. There are these, there there are big logging companies who have an unsustainable business model and they're pressuring the government really hard to um, unlock old growth forests, claiming it's about jobs when in reality, it's about uh, liquid. I guess continuing the boom times for a few more years while they can, you know, run their business on in, in this unsustainable way and to make more money and then get out uh, and leave sort of the workers stranded. Um, and right now, the BC government is sort of it's 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 in paralysis. Really, it's it's its own report is telling it not to log old growth, and yet um, logging companies have a pretty big political influence. And they are using that influence um, to a maximal degree to influence the BC government uh, to make them to basically let them continue as is. And the BC government's talking about change, talking about change, but they're not actually changing. That's the problem. And the logging companies are then weaponizing um, the First Nations to um, continue the logging because most of the First Nations, you know, will be on the side of the logging companies in many cases because. Um, they are economically dependent on the logging companies. And that's one of our main demands is, we want a moratorium on old growth logging, but not only do we do we want a moratorium on old growth logging, we need economic alternatives for First Nations so that they can actually preserve their, their unceded territory. Uh, because right now what's happening is, uh, it, it's kind of like a damned if you do and damned if you don't. It's like either you log your territory or you go into poverty, like which one is it? And most of the communities are already in poverty. Um, so those, that's, that's, what, that's the situation right now. And what we're asking for is the B.C. government to stop the logging right now. Uh, this is actually something that, that um, we're echoing from the, um, from the UBCIC, which is the Union of B.C. Indian Chiefs. Um, and they said basically put down the power SAWS. We want to have the conversations. We want to protect our forests. But we can't protect them if you keep on cutting them down, because by the time we're done talking, there won't be anything left. So that's sort of the situation right now is we want them to put down chainsaws, offer economic alternatives to the First Nations, like tourism, like conservation financing, and have the conversation. But right now they're not having the conversation and they're just listening to these industrial interests and ignoring literally thousands, thousands of people have been out of the blockades, tens of thousands of British Columbians in support of this issue. 90% of British Columbians don't want to see old growth logging. They're ignoring that in favor of these really massive timber companies who ultimately aren't benefiting anyone except themselves. I mean, even workers, like they're increasing automation and once the old growth runs out, the workers are going to be laid off. Um, and it's just a matter of, does it happen now or does it happen in three to five years? And what we're saying is provide economic alternatives, adjust transition. Um, and we're basically there and trying to, trying to get them to
1: listen. Yeah, I think you've really raised the issue of how systemic this issue runs um, and it involves many different people with different interests and I know Jess has a question. So yeah, Jess, take it away.
4: Yeah, I I want to be very clear that Sierra is an ally of Indigenous First Nations and supporting of all sovereignty. And with that, I'm wondering if when when you're discussing offering alternatives to logging, if that's something that um, people have consulted Pachita First Nation with, if that's something that they want that you know of?
0: In general, um, the Ancient Forest Alliance does really good work around this. We're sort of on more of the, on the action end of things, but yeah, the, one of the, one of the biggest acts from First Nations individually and from the UBCIC is for conservation financing and for time to have these discussions, because in the meantime, it's sort of a plunder of the resource without actually having the, uh, those conversations. Um, right now we are, um, like the, 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 the uh right now are, in a revenue sharing agreement with Teal Jones. And because of that revenue sharing agreement, um, some of the band uh, leadership has basically said the blockades are unwelcome on their land. But then other community members, including elder Bill Jones, who's been a really outspoken supporter of the blockades has said, stay at all costs because you know this is our heritage that we're losing. So it's a, it's a really complicated issue, but what really just needs to happen is the chainsaws need to be put down and there needs to, there need to be talks. You know, th- There needs to be talks that include all of the stakeholders and put at the forefront conservation of these forests. And right now we're not seeing that. Right now we're seeing um, this sort of hasty move to liquidate the last of what's left um, at all costs, functionally.
1: Yeah, you bring up some amazing points. So I think, you know, stemming from that, what needs to be done and also what needs to be done at at those different stakeholder levels, specifically, you know, from an indigenous standpoint, the Pashida, how how do we make this a just, issue for them and also for forest conservation and for maintaining the health of the old growth ecosystems.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't actually know the, the clear answer to that and what has to be done in terms of coming to an agreement with the nation. But I know that the, the Pachdiad are not united on what's going on there. So like, like Joshua was just saying, like needing to pause and just have the conversations and figure out a solution that works for everyone though I don't think it's ever gonna work for the giant logging companies, but for the government and for the Pachtiat particularly. But yeah, I really don't think the solutions have been presented yet. Um, We're kind of in this place where a good portion of them are saying we wanna keep logging. And then the elders there are saying that we need you to stand for our forests. And um, I heard a beautiful story last week too about a group of women that wanted to go hike the West Coast Trail. And it starts in the Pashtiat Nation. And they reached out to the nation and asked, like, who do we talk to about your land use and for like how to the ceremony and for all of that. And everyone uh, in the nation basically pointed to Bill. And they had Bill Jones receive them and bring them in and send them off. So it was like years ago when it's not about money and it's about just the land and how the nation feels about it, Bill was who they brought forward. So he's one of the ones that I feel like is the maybe the most important voice uh, currently out there. And he's been the one asking for us to stand and not to leave. So at this point, I feel like his his words and wisdom is what we all should be listening to the most, but we also can't ignore everything else.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Colby. Um, Kim, do you have anything you want to add to that?
3: Uh, a little. I mean, it's a really complicated issue, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I community divisions... Um, are being seen, and that's a hard one to that's a hard one to participate in. Um, but in a letter that was released by Jeff Jones, um, the you know band council leader last week or so, um, he stated that they um, were not interested in having uninvited third party activists on their territory. And from day one, from the day I met Bill Jones. I have felt as an invited and supported member. Um, And so it's, Colby said it really eloquently, but um, yeah, Bill is, he's asking for support to stand up for what little is left of his ancestors as he calls it, Um, calls the trees, the forests. um, There's wisdom being lost and um, it's it's a hard one. Because of course, in um, the more time that we spend, the more we learn about the different dynamics. And so just layers unfurl. And Adam Wilson put it really well in the legislature recently when he said, you know, um, it's not a negotiation when there aren't any options. Like the option right now is a revenue sharing agreement with logging companies or don't, that's your option. Like, And that is not a negotiation. So, um, the terminology being used by the ndp and by uh capitalist stakeholders in general isn't uh it's just words for the news it's not actually any meaningful consultation um and so yeah i i don't know if that says much or answers much but one thing that i wanted to point out i know that earlier um when we were talking stakeholders and we were talking like the big companies and we were talking First Nations and we're talking to government, one thing that I kind of want to point out, this is sort of a side note, is another stakeholder is actually, Teal Jones contracts all of their work out to subcontractors. So there's all these very small companies, very, very small companies that have signed on to contracts with this company that cares nothing for their health, nothing for the benefits to their families. Like they are on these tiny margins and they're forced into work that some of them actually probably don't even want to be doing. and that's a whole other complexity. I just, I don't know why I felt like I had to throw that in when the stakeholders were, um, you know, being thrown out there because there's like multiple small contractors who are working within that region who um, barely make a living and the larger companies are profiting enormously off of that work. And um, that's a really frustrating aspect as well.
0: Yeah, I remember that um, on in the first week when we, blockaded up at Ridge Camp, which was the location where uh, the logging contractor was um, road building into Ferry Creek on behalf of Keela Jones, um, when we blockaded them, I heard it from somebody who was actually there who said um, that one of the contractors, when they were talking to one of the contractors, and he said that that place is effing intact. We shouldn't be going in there. He's just like, I've I've been logging, I've been doing this all my life, but that place is intact. We shouldn't be doing this, you know, and honestly, I think that many of the workers would be on our side if they had alternatives but they don't have alternatives the first nations don't have alternatives no one has alternatives because the government isn't offering them and that's the real the real problem here is we need economic alternatives for the nations for the community and we can come up with those you know, sustainable second growth logging there is a, most of the forests in british columbia are second growth and if you aren't cutting them with dollar bunchers if you're using gentler techniques if you're using selective harvest you actually have to have workers out there with chainsaws if you aren't exporting all of the trees you cut, then you have more work in British Columbia. There are, there are plenty of alternatives, um, but right now the government isn't doing that. Instead, they're favoring the status quo and letting the status quo continue for just, the, all these logging companies want is another five years. All they want is another five years of the status quo because once in another five years, all of the old growth is gonna be gone and they're gonna be out of the country. You know, Teal Jones has invested tens of millions of dollars in Virginia They bought a sawmill in Virginia and lands in Virginia, so they can go move their operation to Virginia once they run out of old growth. Because their business is entirely dependent on logging cedar trees that are older than than our society that are a thousand years old. You know, that's their entire business model. And once they're out of those cedars, and what for them is literally three to five years, it's for other companies it's up to ten years. um, They're out of here, and the government and that and right now the government just needs to they need to stand up for these forests before there's absolutely nothing left because the companies want to log until there's
3: absolutely nothing left it does in fact say in their business plan that they will harvest old growth until the resource is exhausted
0: yeah it's one of their stated objectives in their forest management plan exploit all old growth resources until exhausted
1: for for listeners that don't understand why, why would, you know, Teal Jones want old growth forests over a sec, like you just mentioned, like secondary growth forests like what's the difference? How is the quality? Like, why are they targeting old growth when they could do secondary forests?
0: So in an old growth forest, like in an old growth cedar forest, the trees, like these are like the redwoods. These, this is, this is the kind of logging you don't think happens anymore. These trees are easily 10 feet thick. They can be 15 feet thick, they are massive. And each of them is worth tens of thousands, potentially even up to $100,000 to one company. And um, not only are they, do they have so much wood in each of these trees, they're also, they, these trees have been growing for in some cases for, up, for almost 2000 years. There are trees that are that are estimated to be, be between 1500 and 2000 years old in the headwaters of Ferry Creek. And each of those years is a layer in the in in the wood and the grains are so tight tight together they're so tightly knit that they are it's some of the highest quality wood in the world and um you know teal jones makes shingles out of them they make guitars out of them they make all sorts of these really fine products out of them that are ultimately luxuries that we don't actually need shingles or um this many guitar tops (laughs) um but it's, it's just some of the most valuable wood in the world, but it's also made out of some of the most valuable habitat in the world. And you know, these old growth forests, it, you know, you can imagine that these, that these trees are, are valuable just because they're a thousand years old, and they are. But each of these trees supports more life than you can imagine if you haven't been in one of these forests. There are canopies alone. They can have trees growing out of them. They can have three, five, 10 tops in one tree and they have moss mats and they have there's so much habitat each of these trees um but the companies see fifty thousand dollars there fifty thousand dollars there and it's worth it for them to you know be logging just small patch with a helicopter or um what they tend to do is they just tend to build roads and take everything at once because why not <laughs> it increases their margins and right now they say that we're blocking about 10 million dollars worth of timber to them so we see sacred places and they see 10 million dollars and now they've obtained an, an injunction that allows them to arrest us for blocking their $10 million. So that's what we're waiting well, to happen basically.
3: The interesting part about that for me is that when you look at that compared to what we're spending on the site, see down $10 million is it might as well be 20 bucks, you know, in the grand scheme of how we're spending our money provincially. Um, but back to the question of the like the, what is so attractive about old growth forests is the strength of the wood really is quite spectacular. Um, And so it's very sought after. So another part of this equation is changing our habits as consumers as to what we want and what we are, um, yeah, what we're purchasing, like what kind of building materials we want, like why do you need to have a yellow cedar beam in your big fancy new house? You don't, in fact, there's many other building alternatives and so, it's it's that's another layer to it is is a consumer issue as well um it's highly sought after and we're allowing it to just be put on shipping containers or shipping you know on ships sent away because it's a highly valued building material and there's yeah
0: another thing i'd mention is that the loggers view these old growth forest ecosystems which are health what healthy forests should look like with all the dead trees and you know, falling over trees and the 500-year-old trees, um, they view these forests as decadent. Like when you talk to the loggers, they're kind of disdainful of them. They're like, these forests are decadent. They're just falling over and dying. But that's what a healthy ecosystem looks like. And um, one of the things that these logging companies are doing is the more old growth that they can log now, um, I'm not talking about Teal Jones in this case because they're planning on cutting and running, but other companies that are in this for the, the long haul of harvesting, you know, second, third, fourth growth forests, you know, plantation trees that are four inches thick. Um, The more old growth they log now and the more old growth that they're able to log, the greater their harvestable land base base is. So if they log another, you know, 10,000 acres of old growth, 10,000 hectares of old growth, um, that's another 10,000 hectares that they'll be able to continue, continuously put in plantation forests and log and put in plantation forests and log um, until the soil runs out, you know. And that's another sort of terrifying thing is you think about Indonesia where uh, they're logging for palm oil and a lot of Westerners are like how could they do that in Indonesia and it's like we're doing that right here it's right under our nose.
5: Do you feel like the current prices of lumber in I think across Canada they've gone up significantly in the last year like do you think that that's a part of the urgency of the company and my other question is you know, we we basically like value our forests in British Columbia for their timber value. Like we don't put value on their biodiversity. We don't like like monetary value. But like, do you think that putting a monetary value on like biodiversity and like habitat loss is potentially a solution to like make more people understand this side of things?
3: Um, I mean, life on earth as we know it is in such fine. It's such a precarious situation. I don't even understand how we can need to put things into um, a dollar value in order to get people to be aware. And I realize it's hard unless you're kind of closer to the natural world to really see how precarious it all is. And also why the anthropocentric view of this whole thing is the other thing that always gets me is like we talk about the value of the forest and um you know what is um the dollar value and these forests need to be around for our grandkids like who's talking about bears losing habitat who's talking about cougars losing habitat what about medicines that don't exist unless there's a douglas fir tree that's 500 years old like all of this stuff is like um, yeah that would be great if we could put a dollar value on a bear den but you know or on a mushroom that will not live on a tree that's less than a certain amount of years old um, but I'm, I'm actually some the more I discover and spend time out there and get into this the more I'm appalled at the fact that um, that we can be so blind to just this I just feel like we're these mammoths well and I know that we are as a whole like just consuming our way through everything until it's gone but um just the human-centered vision of all of this is, is kind of shocking but yeah it's unfortunate that it would have to be a dollar value like the magnificence alone it's and just um you know Bill was talking this summer we were driving on a logging road and Um, we were just discussing stumpage fees and drainage and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, he pointed out to me that like, once you build a road before you even start to log, you've just created a deep wound that has now cut one side of the forest away from its ability to talk to the other side of the forest and that unity and that diversity is already depleted it's already been whatever the word is um anyway like we don't even have to cut them down to cause trouble it's amazing and we're just starting to understand how interconnected absolutely everything is and now we are at this point where there's so little left I Mm -hmm. can't even believe it's still an option really
1: it's really a shame that a lot of people are brought up without experience without exposure to nature without that access and so as a result they make decisions and they live their lives in a way where everything they do is disconnected from the environment which I think is you know maybe one of the root problems why we're even in this situation um so I think you bring up a great point
3: it's not even really um I mean it is a a spiritual malaise for sure that we have as humanity but It's not even a spiritual uh, connection. It's like the entire forest needs to be intact in order for it to be healthy. It is all connected and we can't just like plant a Douglas fir monoculture and expect that um, species are gonna return, expect that there's still gonna be biodiversity and expect that the mycelium will will re-thread itself through the forest. So we don't get an understory, we don't get canopy species we don't get any of this stuff and um it's just a it's a it's a field at that point it's a harvestable crop and the loss of the societies that were once within these forests in order to have a harvestable crop is just um it's hard to believe and it's like literally irreplaceable until the humans are gone
2: Mm-hmm. Um, something something that I learned while working in uh, conservation about the herring here uh, around Denman and Hornby Island is like when it really comes down to the dollar value of this stuff is that tourism is is one of if not the biggest industry in British Columbia. So once we start killing our ecosystems and like here with the herring, how we're wiping them out, which is wiping out the chinook, which is killing the orcas. Uh, through that we're killing our tourism, and that like we're no—it's it's all about our oceans and our forests. So if we clear cut all our old growth forests, we're we're like that is taking money directly out of BC's economy in the same sort of way. Where like I just found out here, like Comox Valley is my my area that I know. Uh, there's over 9,000 jobs in tourism in this area alone, and I do think it is it is the the, the technically the biggest industry in British Columbia. So those dollar numbers should probably get brought into the conversation when we're talking about the money taken out of the forest with logging the money that's taken out of bringing people to come see beautiful British Columbia.
3: Absolutely. That's a, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, One really good example of that, and I know that people who lived in Tofino prior to 1987 might not agree with it having been a good thing, but the attention that the Clackwood Sound issue brought to Tofino from the world, turned it into a world-class tourist destination and that is now their economy base. And perhaps that changed the lifestyle of the, um, well, perhaps it absolutely changed the lifestyle of the area and it now supports many more families. And no more. Um, I, I feel that um, there's, I, it's inevitable unfortunately with the population growth and the way the island is exploding population-wise and people's interest in this kind of stuff that Port Renfrew will find itself in the same situation um so people are going to come there it'd be nice to have uh, some shade and water for them to come to um and yeah your point about the connectedness of the streams and the herring and the salmon and the orcas and that, you know, that's a whole other, yeah, tourism. And I believe, well, I know that people are working on that. Like I know that uh, the AFA, like I believe Joshua brought it up, uh, is doing some work on that. And, you know, conservation financing is something that's in the works and being talked about. And this is also beyond my own personal scope. Um, It would be nice, once again, that stuff should be worked on why do we have to keep going until there's a an answer a solution a plan um -hmm. there's really no reason for it well there is a reason for it but (laughs) it's not a good one
4: yeah i just wanted to jump in and um before i ask my question just talk about um an experience that i had on one of the days that I was up um, staying at the, the camp and my partner and I went and we visited Lonely Doug and then we went and saw Eden Grove and then we came back and we saw Avatar Grove last. And this just touches on like the connection to nature piece and the um, um, spiritual side of nature because for me, I, I had never really seen big trees like that before. And we went and saw Lonely Dog first on purpose um, because we wanted to end off that whole like hiking experience on a on a high note and going to see lonely dog in in that you know field in that in that space that has now become a tree farm um just surrounded by these like small miniature like this monoculture of pine trees compared to this like 70 meter tree that's so high up in the sky and so big and and the just the the stark difference between the two is it was just so awakening and just so like disruptive to my being and we just sat there together and cried like we were just so shook by that experience and then going and walking through Eden Grove and seeing all those beautiful big trees and and the boardwalk that's been put together by the um by the by the protesters and then going down and seeing Avatar Grove which has been a little bit more you know run through at this point but is still protected I mean just the connection there the The energy the essence of being within those forests can't be replaced by a second growth forest can't be replaced by um you know a a pine monoculture forest it just that feeling can't be replaced um and so i just wanted to to make that point um but i had a question about um for you know either one of you about alternatives to timber within the economy and if any of you want to speak to like you know, moving away from from using timber as, you know, a very high source of of production material within our economy and what other alternatives there are um, for us to be maybe considering in a sustainable sense.
0: So we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction event in world history. Um, We're on the cusp of, of a climate crisis of biblical proportions and at this point, Um, instead of of accepting that there are limits to growth, our society is just going full steam ahead. And the solution to what do we do instead of building with timbers made out of old growth forest or made out of second growth forest for that matter, um, the solution isn't to find something else to exploit. The solution is to not exploit. (laughs) The solution is to stop our obsession with growth and actually and actually return to a, na- a balance with the land where we don't exploit the land to serve our needs, but instead enter into relationship with the land. Um, you know, these forests are communities. They are, they, they're com- com- communities that we don't understand because we've lost connection with them, but they are every bit as important as human beings are. And um, the same is true for, you know, the mountain that would be strip mined for cement. The same is true for, the source of any other material that we would use to cons- to fuel our consumptive lifestyles, because the fact is, the problem is our consumptive lifestyles. That's that's it. It's, it's not it's not what do you buy different. It's don't buy, <laughs> you know, don't buy it so much. Buy as little as you can. Um, but ultimately, the conversation around these forests is it's framed as you know, well, we have to balance out the you know the different stakeholders and we have to have, you know, we, you know, it, it's, it's framed as sort of a, a it, it, it's, it's sort of framed as as if logging these forests would be an option that is even on the table, but we're in a biodiversity crisis that is unparalleled in world history in, in the history of the entire planet. And at a time when there's supposed, there's supposedly climate action, there's supposedly, you know, BCs and um, the, the, the Parliament adopted a, you know, a declaration on climate emergency. I, even as they're saying all these things, they are continuing not only to perpetuate um, the, the situation which is already bad, but to make it worse by actually cutting more of the ecosystem. And that is literally insane. That is, that, that is you know, the, uh, the Minister of Forest was just on, um, on a panel talking about um, how the future of BC uh, forests is for pellets for green energy, pellet manufacturing for green energy, which I think we all know is not green. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of insane that this sort of, this structure of capitalist, colonialist greed is is still in charge. But I think that that's, I mean, that's what we're doing I think right now. I think that at Ferry Creek, we have thousands of people saying that the status quo is not working and that we will not let it continue. And I think well it goes well beyond Fairy Creek and it's not going to end at Fairy Creek. But we need to we need to reclaim the power because the power ultimately should lie with the people, and the people should be acting on behalf of the people, but also the ecosystems because these are these forests mean a lot to themselves, and we have no right to destroy them. None of us have a right to destroy a forest, and that's where the conversation needs to be, and that's what people need to do. People need to stand up for their own forests everywhere, in British Columbia, across the world, across Canada, um, they need to stand up for their ecosystems and their land base and say enough is enough. And that, I mean, that sort of has a lot of revolutionary potential in, in, in that those sorts of ideas, but ultimately that's what we need to have if we're gonna avert um, what is essentially an event that threatens the existence of life on earth. I mean, yeah. it's, it's as simple as that.
3: Sorry to interrupt, Joshua. Um, it's interesting to hear you after Michaela speak, um, because the, the humility that one feels when you're in a place like Eden Grove is like, it's just so humbling. And I think that's part of, you know, when, um, when I'm in those places, like it was um, a hike in the Wallbrand that really made it so that I couldn't ignore this issue anymore. Um, because it's so humbling, because I am so insignificant in the face of these places. And then after listening to Michaela, to hear you say also, you were like, the forests are as important as the humans it just struck me at that moment that it's actually really interesting that without the humans the forests are fine without the human without the forests, the humans are dead so it's like it's even beyond we you know it's beyond they're as important it's like we depend on this for our existence it's that simple and um i think that this started uh, i think your thing started a little bit with Um, our consumerism and just like leveling it down, just getting a little bit less, like just changing the mindset around consuming and constantly building and buying new things. One interesting thing about being at the blockade and being there, um, protection camp, I'm sorry, um, being there so much and so frequently and especially more lately as things start to get um, amped up a bit is the reminder of how simple life can be I mean, when you're in a place, there's no internet, there's no power, there's no, you know, um, we uh, have erected multiple TP structures, um, some with canvas that was given to us, some with other things. Um, It's a simple, effective, beautiful shelter. Um, The air is clean, you know, the distractions are less and you get so much more done in a day. Um, It's just, it's really nice to be reminded and not that I'm gonna be like, going to a protection camp is like being at summer camp, but in a way, you're reminded of like the, um, the importance of simplicity and the ridiculousness of the complexities we make in our lives of all of these things. And, you know, I don't even, I don't even care I was lost to my new shoes, who cares? <laughs> we don't need those, you know, just little things. Um, but yeah, to be humble in the face of a planet that literally is keeping us alive, I think is very important. I think that's a really
5: good reminder actually, like using the word humble. Some of my earliest memories are actually like in old growth forests. I live in Nelson and I used to live in the cusp. Um, so like just south of the, one of the world's only inland temperate rainforests. Um, and having those memories is something that I think has driven a lot of my life and a lot of the work that I've done. So I like that you use that word humble. Cause that's really how you feel in the face of like trees that size and like, you know, yeah, it's impossible. there's no other
1: feeling. <laughs> I completely agree. I took a walk in an old growth forest the other day, one of the very rare ones on Salt Spring Island, and there is no feeling. It's just a sense of calm and deep appreciation and gratitude. And the thought about not having those ecosystems in the future. I don't even really know how to describe it, not even for myself, but for the plants, the animals, we're all living beings. So I think you both speak so beautifully about that. And um, as we're getting close to wrapping up, Colby, I would love to hear a little bit more about your work and what you're doing with the footage you're taking.
2: Yeah, what I'm trying to do is just to like first and foremost, get out there because I haven't been involved intrinsically for very long at all. I've kind of just been on the outskirts paying attention to what's happening. Um, so I've been trying to go there and get to know everyone that's deeply involved. Like I've met Kim the last few weeks and Shauna and some of the people from the islands and just kind of find out, uh, what they would like the general masses to hear that I not necessarily read in an article. So the first time I went out there, I just asked five people that had been there for a while to do a direct call to action. And I quickly edited that and put it out when I came home this time, I just went with my drone and got as much footage of the clear cuts and of the different forests. And I'm putting together a quick piece that'll just talk about some of the statistics and the facts about the area and what we're trying to protect and why we need to protect it. And then um, there's another filmmaker, Jen, I think it's Moxham, she's there. She's working on like a feature length documentary. So I'm just also offering anything I shoot to her. And then each time I go, which ideally is every week or every other week, um, I'm just gonna go talk to the main organizers and see if there's anything else that they would like for the world to know and then I'm trying to bring musicians and artists to go collaborate with them out there as well because I make music videos and worked in music festivals for a long time and I know the power of video and music together and how that can deeply resonate with people so um, right now I'm trying to get uh, I have a friend from Tofino she's actually from Harugui she lives in Tofino now she's an indigenous looping artist and we're trying to plan a trip to go out there and film a handful of videos out in the forest. And then Autumn Sky, who's one of the most, I think, brilliant painters maybe in the world. Uh, she's from Powell River and she just went out there and she's, she's going back and I'm going to go with her when she goes and document her painting in the woods for the four days and interview her and people that will come talk to her while she's there. So basically, I just want to be there as much as I can with my equipment, capturing it. And I don't really have an agenda just trying to participate in help the people that are really deeply involved, uh, share their voices and, and be heard and share anything that I film too. Like if you guys wanna use any of my drone footage or any of the, the stuff that I've been taking, I just want it to be seen and I want the world to know what's there.
4: Yeah, you already touched on this a little bit, Kobe, but I just wanted to ask specifically, like, what role do you think that your film and filmmaking in general and storytelling really plays in engaging the public with this issue and why is that important like, to you specifically?
2: I just hope that it can expand the audience and more make more people aware because I think the more people that are aware of a situation like this, uh, the more support it's going to get. And I've even just seen that in my three trips because I came in the fall and I, got, I couldn't even find my way to River Camp. I took the wrong road at the beginning now where the entrance is and drove for five kilometers in my Prius and ended up ripping off my heat thing because uh, it was so barren back then. And then I went when the injunction first got served and when there was starting to be some infrastructure and now in the two weeks since, there's like structures every 15, 20 feet and there's the buildings and there's three toilets now. So it's like making sure that it continues to have momentum and that that like it doesn't just fade away. Cause I think that that's what the media and the government wants and that's why they're like trying to paint us out to be militants is to discourage people from coming and discourage people from sharing. Um, so I think that's like where my role and my skill set is easily easily used there is just to show the people that are there and show what's really happening and to get more people interested. And it's really cool to see like Mark Buffalo is posting and different celebrities that are getting on board because everyone like you don't meet many people and ask them about what they think about the old growth and they don't care about it. It's something that everyone has like a deep like almost – like instinctual respect for. So I feel like just showing as much of what is actually there uh, is just super important. And maybe not quite enough has happened. I hadn't seen enough myself as like a observer in the last however many months. Maybe I wasn't paying attention enough. And I have a big social network that isn't necessarily connected to the one that's there. So That's like, that's always what I like to do with my work anyways is connect different groups of people and try to have and like through that have conversation because to me that's the point of art is to to talk about it. So if I can go make art out there and get people talking then I've achieved something.
1: Yeah, I love that. You spoke so beautifully, Colby. My parents are musicians and I was raised with, you know, classical music all my life and I think those outlets are so incredibly important to get different messages across and to also spark different emotions in people and so I love the work that you're doing. Before we go, I would love for you all to, you know, let our listeners know what are some items of action that they can adopt right now that they can do if they want to be involved in any way, or they want to learn more about this issue. Yeah. We would really appreciate it.
0: So um, if you're on Vancouver Island or if you are in British Columbia, uh, come to the blockades. Like we need people there. Um, You can come in a role that risks arrest or in a role that doesn't risk arrest. Uh, um, It's safe. It's easy. Um, Come self-sufficient, but if you can't make it out to the blockades, then call, 250-387-1715, 250-387-1715, that's the number of Premier John Horgan, and shame him for doing this to our forest, tell him that we need a moratorium on old growth logging, and ideally do that every day um, until he actually listens to us. Um, you can also follow us on social media, we're at the Rainforest Flying Squad, or at Rainforest Flying Squad and at Ferry Creek Blockade on Instagram and Twitter and uh, facebook and stay tuned with all that and there are petitions to sign um, there's a lot of stuff you can do um, but keep on calling john horgan tell him to end old growth logging come out to camp those are the big ones
3: yep pretty much what joshua said um, get outside and talk to your friends neighbors families educate um do some reading um share yeah all the things that joshua just said share those things but better yet if you have more than 10 minutes and you happen to be in the area even for a day go for uh, a day trip and see what's going on at the camps um it's it's really so much different than people uh, imagine that it would be and um it's i think a lot of people get inspired once they spend just even a day peeking around at what's going on and talking to a few people and realizing it's um it's incredibly empowering to realize that you can actually just get in the way like that. You just stand there. That's what you can do for 10 minutes. You can wake up at five 30 in the morning <laughs> and stand in front of a machine. It doesn't take 10 minutes. It, you know, anyway, <laughs> it's bananas power to the people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And to follow up with what Kim just said too, when I, when I went out there uh, finally for the first time for real, a couple of weeks ago, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since uh, the last year or so has been pretty brutal uh, in terms of my mental health and peoples in general with the lockdowns. And uh, I'd honestly started to lose faith in humanity more often than not. And going out to the blockades and just talking with the people there uh, kind of gave me a newfound hope um, to see that many people selflessly working to fight for something that they like truly believe in. Um, So, yeah, if you can get out there, you should. If you can't get out there, try to talk to them uh, if you can here. And I do think that, like, the most important thing people can be doing is just having these conversations, talking about what's going on and trying to figure out solutions and then having those conversations with other people because then it just continues to spiral and carry on.
0: Yeah. If you, like, if you aren't in British Columbia and you can't make it to the blockades and you've already called and you want to do more, then find a forest, find a prairie, find Find anywhere around your house. And I guarantee there will be one that is about to be destroyed. Um, but we need these movements everywhere. Um, and, you know, start your own. Like Berry Creek is one intact valley. There are There's another intact valley on northern Vancouver Island where there's active logging happening. There's, um, they're logging old growth forests all across the province. They're destroying ecosystems all across the country, all across the world, literally wherever you go. Whatever you love, whatever ecosystem you love, whatever place you love, isn't being destroyed. So stand up for it. That's my message.
3: So take a look at lastdownforforest.com is our website. And um, there's a lot of information there. Um, on the website, there's all of the maps. There's the just uh, information on how the blockades work and uh, different, all of the news releases that come, well, our media releases that come out. So any up-to-date information will be on there as well.
1: Yeah, honestly, just before we say goodbye, just thank you for you all being here for sharing your knowledge, your emotions, your passion, your wisdom on this issue. You really took something complex and you broke it down for everybody, but you made sure that the conversation was respectful and rooted in just, you know, the knowledge that We love these trees and we want to do what we can to protect them. So that's it for today, folks. Please like us on Instagram and you can also listen to our podcast on Spotify or Apple or wherever else you listen to your episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you in two weeks.